Heavenly Father, you are so good to us to allow us to enter into your presence in worship and song. And now in the hearing of the word, Father. And so my prayer for my own heart and for the hearts of my friends out here is that we would hear you clearly, that you would speak into our hearts about who you are, about the the nature of reality and about how wonderful and amazing you really are, not only in your intrinsic attributes, your beauty as we sung, your wisdom, your knowledge, your sovereignty, your grace, your love, your affection for us, but also in how you've orchestrated redemptive history to bring us to here. This body of believers, these individuals here, this is not an accident that we're here today. And so I pray that that would not be lost on us as we dive into your word, Father. And the families that are suffering right now in Texas because of what happened in that school, I pray that your spirit would be with them, Father. It is so difficult to see atrocities like these shootings and to have have that reconciled with our view of a loving God, but we know that you are working in and through these circumstances, Father, for the joy of people and for the glory of your name. And so my prayer right now, Father, is that you would meet the needs of those families that are waking up with one person less in their houses. with smiles that they will never see on this side of eternity again. I pray that you would be with them, that you would mourn with them, that you'd speak into their hearts, Father, and that you'd bring about some way, shape, or form your glory and their joy in the middle of the deepest and darkest heartbreak. I pray this in confidence. I pray this trusting in you, knowing who you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So there was a king who lived a long, long time ago in a country far, far away. And during the time of war, he chose to remain at home instead of going out and fighting with his men. He remained in the safety of his home. And from his rooftop one day, he looked out across the city and he saw a woman bathing And he sends for her, though she is married to another man, a man who is fighting for him at that very moment on the front lines. And upon receiving her into the palace, the king somehow convinces her that she should ignore her marriage vows. And so she conceives a child with this king. And when the king hears it, his response is to cover it up, is to conceal it, is to keep it out of public view. He doesn't want anybody to hear about this. But when all of his efforts to do this fail, he goes to one final option, the darkest of the options that were before him. He decides to kill this husband and take him out of the equation. And so he sends orders for this man the husband of this woman, to be sent to the front lines for the army to pull back and for him to be left exposed. A man who, mind you, has done nothing wrong. The news returns back to this king that the man has died, mission accomplished. 
And though the woman mourns her, the, the, the man's wife, he takes her, the king takes her as his own wife, and he refuses to tell anyone outside of them what's happened. He refuses to tell them until someone one day calls him out and says, you did this. And in that moment, he displays a truth about him, that this king is really a wicked, sinful king, and he deserves to die, which he even says with his own mouth. I want you to listen to the words that come out of this king's mouth immediately after being exposed. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Those are the words of King David, the beloved king of Israel. And this event that I just described for you in Scripture is the greatest tragedy of his life, without question. And he has many tragedies in his life. The taking of another man's wife, the calculated murder of her husband, a loyal man who was giving his very life to King David, and his refusal, outright refusal to confess his sin before God until he's absolutely forced to. And then the result of this event is Psalm 51. What I just read for you, the first seven verses. That's the beginning of his confession. So as we come to the end of our series that we're currently in, which is called In Christ, we are faced with this reality of something called the triumph in the cross of Christ. And the question I want to ask this week and next week is this. How did Jesus win on that tree? How can a battered and bloodied man nailed naked to a tree outside of the city with all the other criminals be considered the victor? How is that even possible? And how does that affect David 1,000 years before Jesus ever walked on the earth. How does that affect us 2,000 years after he's come and gone? Our text today is going to help us answer that question. So if you have your Bibles, please turn them to Colossians 2. We'll be in verse, verses 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God 
made alive together with him, together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, the record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So last week we looked at verse 13, and we asked, what does it mean to be made alive in Christ? What does it mean to, through our union with Jesus Christ on the cross, be raised with him? We talked about this powerful working of God through faith, how God, when we first believed What was happening there was God was literally making a spiritually dead person alive. And it is nothing short of a miracle. And all of that was achieved, as we said last week, through the cross, through Jesus dying and raising from the dead three days later. And so Paul sums up this miraculous act by God in our lives with one phrase. He says, God has forgiven us all our trespasses. So somehow in this great act of regeneration, God bringing someone from death to life, God removes our sin from us. He cleanses us of all our iniquity and transgressions. And so over this week and next week, what I want to do is I want to take two perspectives, two looks at this from different angles. The first is this. I want to know what does it mean personally for God to have redeemed us in this way? What does it mean for God to have forgiven us of all our trespasses personally? Like for David, personally, as he's exposed, what does it mean for him that God will forgive him of these heinous and grotesque sins that he's just committed? Or for us, for whatever you're struggling with, what does it mean personally for us that God has forgiven us? And then next week, God willing, what I want to ask is an even broader question, and that is, What happened cosmically for forgiveness to be possible? What happened in the universe? What does it mean that God triumphed over the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame? So I hope you'll be with us next week, but let's let's dig in this first question now. What does it mean, forgiveness of sins, for us personally? I think the question we need to ask first is this. What is forgiveness of sins? What is forgiveness? Let's just start with that word. What does it mean to be forgiven? Well, Merriam-Webster says, it is to cease to feel resentment against an offender or to grant someone relief from a payment for something. So forgiveness is to cease feeling resentment over something or to grant someone relief from a payment that they owe you. Another definition, this is Wikipedia, says forgiveness is the intentional and voluntary process by which a victim undergoes a change in feelings or attitude regarding an offense. I think we can all relate with that. So in a way, I think we could sum up that forgiveness at its very basic level is to assume and bear the debt of something, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, It's bearing that and thereby not charging it to the person who's actually guilty. Not charging it to their account. (laughs) And so they don't have to bear it. Now I'm going to give you an example. JD, I'm going to use you. All right. 
Let's say that I take JD's bike out of his garage and I bring it to my garage and I put it in there, which is a possibility because he knows that my bike gets stolen last year. Um, and I keep his bike in my garage without telling him. And so basically I'm stealing his bike, just like my bike gets stolen, I'm stealing his. And now he's walking by my garage one day and he says, Jeremy, I think that's my bike in your garage. And I say, yeah, I, t- I took it out of your garage, JD. He's like, that's stealing. Um, and in that moment, no matter if I give it back to him or not, I've wronged him. I've committed an, an offense against him. He didn't have his bike. He should have had it. And therefore, that's the wrong that I've committed against him. So JD has a choice now. He's got two choices. He said he could either exact that wrong from me and make me bear punishment by calling the cops. I don't know how far you get with that, though, because it is just a bike. Stop freaking out about the bike. <laughs> um, or he could assume the wrong himself. He could take on the wrong himself and forgive me and bear the debt incurred. The debt would be here just simply the injustice of having not possessed his bike for a time or the pain from broken trust. This was his friend that took his bike from him. And in this instance, him bearing the debt, he would be forgiving me and acting as though there was no wrong actually committed. Now, those are the two responses possible. Now, either way, in either of those responses, whether I'm forgiven or not, someone has to bear the debt. They have to feel pain over the event and endure a kind of punishment for what's happened, for the transgression, for the sin. Either the offender is punished through justice or the offended is punished through forgiveness. And we know this because we've gone through forgiveness before. We've talked about it before. For example, in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, Paul says this about forgiveness. He says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. And then he describes what redemption is, the forgiveness of sins. Or in Colossians 1, 21 through 22, where Paul says, And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God, or Christ rather, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so both of these verses, passages, are pointing to exactly the same thing we just read in Colossians 2. This event that while we were sinners dwelling in the domain of darkness and doing evil deeds, that God broke into our lives and redeemed and reconciled us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So in the cross, somehow God has redeemed us and he's reconciled us. He had to do something to get those things out of the way. And so he is forgiving something that we've done. And I think you guys know the answer to that question. If I were to ask, what, are, what is he forgiving us for? Anyone who's been to Sunday school knows God is forgiving us for our sins. Our sins, the transgressions we've committed against him. And that's the correct answer. But I think most of us have known this answer for our entire lives. And so when we say the word sin, or when we say the word redeem or reconcile, they've lost most of their weight. There's no gravity underneath them. So here's a question, just a test. Have you ever, when praying to God and confessing your sins, said something like this? 
have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Have you ever said, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions? Do you feel your sin such that it moves you when you commit sins to use that language with God? Or against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is how David prayed and thought about his sin. This is how badly it gripped him when it was exposed. He pleaded for the mercy of God because he knew how great his iniquity was. And so, do you do that? And I'm asking myself the same question. Do I pray to God this way? Not the words, the heart. For David's sin was heavy, but is this a David issue? I mean, he did, after all, commit adultery. He killed a man. His sins are grievous in many ways that ours may not be. But is it just a David situation? Or is it something that is actually pervasive and every human being should feel this way about their sin? Jesus helps us in Luke 13. In Luke 13, Jesus answers a question, perhaps the most insightful statement from Jesus about not only the universality of sin, but about its profound significance and its heaviness. Listen to what Jesus says here. It says in verse 1 of Luke 13, there was some present at that very time who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them and said, do you think that these Galileans were any worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And his answer to that question, the rhetorical question is, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So reflect on what's happening here. First off, a local ruler, Pilate, who will eventually um, allow Jesus to be crucified, um, he apparently infiltrates a temple while these Galileans are giving their sacrifices, and he slaughters them and then sprinkles their blood in their sacrifices as humiliation. That's offensive. That's dark. and That's tragic. These people come to Jesus, and it's clear by how Jesus responds to them that they're expecting a kind of answer from him. They're looking for some kind of answer. What did these Galileans do to deserve this? This is horrible, Jesus. And rather than address that or Pilate's wickedness, which he could have done, Pilate isn't immune to this, this is Pilate who did this, or address the, the nature of God's sovereignty over all things, despite bad things happening, which he could does, he does elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus instead says something shocking. He asked them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans who didn't die that day? Because they were suffering in this way when they died. And his answer is, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, he says. Jesus is saying that the Galileans perished because they sinned against God. And if you don't, you will likewise perish. 
And those words, all and likewise, are not accidents. He's not throwing them in there for fun. He wants us to feel those words. All means all. And likewise means the same way that they died, not physically, which I'll get to in a second. He chose those words carefully. He's saying they weren't worse sinners than all of humanity. Everyone is guilty before God. And that response alone, that response alone is mind-blowing. But if Jesus simply let that lie, he would miss another category of people who probably are asking questions about the words he's using. So he engages another recent event. So in Jerusalem, there's a, a neighborhood. It's called Siloam. There were towers there, apparently. One of them fell, crushed 18 people, and they died. Random event. I mean, seemingly random no pilot is involved here. wasn't caused by anything evil. They can't pin it on anyone except for a sovereign God. He could have stopped it. He didn't. 18 people aren't with us anymore. And Jesus responds to them, do you think that they were worse offenders? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, they're not worse offenders. I tell you, Unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. This is staggering for him to say these things. In both cases, Jesus is saying that the sin of every individual is so great and so massive. Why are you expecting something different from this world? Why would you expect or anticipate something different? Not just for Galileans, not just for the people under the tower in Siloam, but for every single human being, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And he's not talking about physically dying here. We know that. Uh, because he uses two different examples. One's a tower falling down, and one's being murdered in the temple. It's not physical death that he's after here. Um, he's after something that is infinitely greater. Listen to John three sixteen, a verse that you guys all know. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, perish, but have eternal life. The kind of perishing that is at stake here as is clear throughout the rest of the New Testament, isn't simply the physical act of death. It is the opposite of eternal life. And the language that Jesus uses in other passages to describe the opposite of eternal life is outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a perishing that is eternal. Jesus refers to it as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, or the furnace where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Why use these words, Jesus? Why use words that are just so enigmatically horrible to describe perishing? He uses these words very seriously, and the reason he uses them is because at the end of the day, he's the one who will judge all people, and he will send them into eternal life or eternal punishment. And given his incredible passion, compassion, we know that his heart is breaking when he says these things. He doesn't want this to happen to them. He wants them to repent and turn and he knows the reality of what hell is, what eternal punishment is, better than anyone else. Because according to John 1, he's the one that prepared the fire in the first place. Now, the purpose of the Bible bringing up the concept of hell, which is uncomfortable. No one likes to talk about hell. 
isn't just to make you desire heaven. This isn't a situation where hell's really bad, so you should try to make your way into heaven. That's not why hell's talked about in the Bible. Christianity is not a get-out-of-hell ticket. And if you conceive of it that way, you're missing what it is. The severity of hell in the words of Jesus are a reflection of the moral horror of sin. And this is difficult for us to see because we are so infected by sin. We are so infected by it that the severity of it when we hear those words is offensive to us. It is offensive to us. We can't see or feel the weight of our own sin unless we look at the reflection of that sin in its judgment. The weight of our own sin is eternal death. And hell exists in our Bible so that we can see how bad sin really is. We can awaken to how bad it is and feel it. And that's why hell would seem entirely rational to us if we understood how worthy God really was of our undying affection, of our love, of our commitment. He's really that worthy. Hell is so offensive to to human beings, generally speaking, because the glory of God is so boring to them. They have no understanding of who it is that they're sinning against. Sin is a very big deal, and so we should, with David, feel, as we confess our sins, in utter helplessness before a perfect and holy God. And we should ask him, God, deal with me, not according to my sin, but according to your steadfast love. And God will respond to that confession with forgiveness, which is what Colossians 2 is saying. So, given what we've just described with sin, like what sin is, what we're forgiven of, it should seem a little ridiculous that a man on a cross for six hours could have any say in whether those sins count. He's one man. And the eternal punishment of the entire world is on the other side of the equation. What happens to those sins? What happens to them on the cross, every single one of them? So think about it. The sins you committed last week. The sins that maybe you committed this morning. Getting the kids out of the bed. (laughs) That always happens to me. The the sin that you will commit tomorrow that you don't even know about. All of those sins are somehow forgiven on the cross. Now remember our definition of forgiveness. It is someone bearing the pain of a wrong committed against them. And in this case, it's God. So how exactly did God forgive us? Well, Paul explains in the next few verses. He says that God canceled our sins. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now we know what legal demands means because of the words that Jesus used to describe eternal punishment. Legal demand for our debt is an infinite punishment because we've dishonored and disgraced an infinitely beautiful God. And we've diminished and ignored the source of all goodness. There's no goodness that exists outside of his hands. And in order for the legal demand to be removed from the equation of our lives, the record of debt in our lives had to be completely nullified, completely removed. So do you see that? That's what Paul's saying here. And this is how God nullifies it. He takes our sin and he nails it on the cross. 
not alone, because sin needs a person to cling to. And so he puts all of our sin, every bad thought or desire or action or word you've ever conceived of. He loads them onto his son. And then he fastens his son to a cross. And as Jesus is on there hanging, suffocating, bearing the legal demands, demands that we deserved, all of our sins are canceled. They are blotted out. They are utterly removed. That's the word there for canceled. It's literally blotted out in the Greek. Now that's good news. That is good news. It's called the gospel for a reason, that through faith in Christ Jesus, all of our sins are done away with. They are removed. Sins you haven't even committed yet, you've already been forgiven for. He's forgiven you for them. You just confess them to him so that they're not hidden anymore. Now, that's massive, that we are miraculously forgiven of our trespasses, but forgiveness isn't the final goal of this situation. That's not what God is ultimately going for. That is a means. It is an essential and critical and important means that we can never get wrong, but it is simply a means. Why did God do it this way? What is the final goal? What is he after here? He could have created any kind of world. Think about this. God could have, surveying all reality in his presence, he could have created any kind of universe, but he created ours. Not out of ignorance. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that there would be a fall, that there would be sin, that there would be rebellion, that there would be death, that there would be suffering. None of that caught him off guard. He is omniscient, yet he chose to create this world knowing all that would happen in reality. Now, why is that? I think we're predisposed because of the culture we live in to immediately go to philosophy and try to figure out, okay, why would God do this philosophically? And we ignore what the Bible says. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 5, because God actually says something about this. Why? Why did I make this universe? Romans chapter 5. We'll start with verse 6. Let me state at the outset, this is the biggest question. You do not get into bigger questions after this. This is where the question line stops. The question why is the biggest question you can have in your life. Why this universe? Why this history? Why me? Why all the things that have happened to me up to this point? Why creation? Why the fall? Why, why ages and ages of sin and rebellion and death and suffering? Why the cross? Romans 5, starting with 6, will give us three massive answers to that question. So we'll go one at a time. Verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about what's being said here. God shows 
his love for us while we're sinners. Christ died for us while we were sinners. The text is saying that in order for us to see the love of God in the way that we needed to, for us to truly understand and comprehend his immense love the way it really is, we actually needed to be in a state of sin. We needed to feel sin. We needed to feel the sinfulness in our hearts and our defiance against God. There's no other way. The only way we could do this, feel the greatness of his love, is if we were not great in and of ourselves. And I'm not saying God caused sin at all. It's not what I'm saying at all. Or that God delights in sin. What I'm saying is that Christ's rescue of us in our sin was essential for us to understand the magnitude of God's love for us. We would never, ever get it. We would never get it. Without the cross, we don't see it. And without a broken world filled with sin, there is no cross. And that's huge because it says that everything in human history, even the broken things that seem unredeemable, have been pushing towards one goal. Everything in your life has been funneling towards one thing. God wants you in the cross to see his love for you. He wants you to feel his love for you. Undeserved. Now that's one reason. Paul's going to build on that. Look at verse 9. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the reconciliation of a sinner, which includes forgiveness of sins according to Colossians 1.22, was designed to guarantee God's commitment to save us. Do you see that? Paul says, we were justified, therefore, how much more shall we be saved? We were reconciled, therefore, how much more shall we be saved? Paul is astounded at the fact that while we were sinners, God chose in the middle of that sin to save us. While we were enemies of God, deserving his wrath, he saved us. And that should provide us great confidence that he will bring us through to the end. Think about those phrases, enemies of God and wrath of God. They should not be pleasant thoughts to us, those words. They should make us feel uncomfortable. Your lack of comfort with those phrases is a natural response. If God is the source of all life, joy, glory in the universe, of all good, Being an enemy of God is being an enemy of all life, all joy, and all glory. Whether hating him or ignoring God, it isn't simply a refusal to believe in a proposition. It is a dismissal of every good thing that has ever existed and been given to you. Because all good things come from the Father above. And enemies of God stand in opposition to him. And therefore, they are tragically fit for only one thing, to be destroyed. And we've said this before. A phrase like the wrath of God is bad news. It is not a comfortable series of words. It is cosmically bad because the wrath of God is the single single greatest negative force in the universe. 
There is nothing like this imaginable. There is no power on earth, nor in heaven, nor anywhere else which holds this kind of destructive and violent force. Now listen to this. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. Peter is saying that next to the wrath of God, the entire cosmos, every galaxy, every star system, is like a flimsy, wet tissue paper in the middle of a hurricane. The universe is dissolved like nothing when Jesus approaches. So when Paul says, God reconciled us as enemies deserving wrath, he means how much more, if he did that, he did the hardest thing, how much more will he save us? Giving your son to die for an enemy is the hardest thing. You will certainly grant them eternal life on the last day. So God is in this passage guaranteeing the promise of life by showing what he did to secure it. So Paul doesn't stop here. He's got a third thing. He's got one more reason that God wrote history this way. Not only did God want to show us his love by saving us as sinners, not only did he want to guarantee us that his commitment was to bring us through to the end, but God wanted to do one last final thing. And this is the greatest one of them all. Verse 11. More than that, Paul says, building on top of these other massive realities, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul says the apex of all these reasons are us rejoicing in God. That is the purpose of all things. Whether creation or the fall or our sin today, our rebellion against God, all of those things, anything that has happened to us, good or bad, including the worst thing that's happened in history, which is the death of Jesus Christ, all of those things we're funneling through so that we would not only see God's love, so that we would not only know his commitment to us, but that we would feel an unapologetic joy in God. The very reason we were made. So reflect on this for a moment. God has ordered everything from the very beginning of time so that we would rejoice in him. That's his goal. Our joy in him. The purpose of human existence is to enjoy God. That's the only way is that we could enjoy, the only way that we could enjoy him the way we ought to is if we see his mercy and see his grace. And so the cross had to happen. Forgiveness had to happen this way. When we see God's love in the cross, we respond with joy. We respond with thanksgiving and delight. We can't help it. Paul doesn't say we rejoice in God because he's bored with him. He doesn't say we rejoice in God because it's the right thing to do. In, Paul sees God in, in the work on the cross and he is overwhelmed by who he is and what he's done. He can't help feel this way about God Joy is something that naturally comes up in him when he's overwhelmed by the reality of what God's done. 
And that's exactly what Paul says our forgiveness was designed to achieve. The forgiveness of sinners was designed so that they would rejoice in God. And so as we close, what I want to do is I want to read some of the rest of David's prayer, his confession to God about his own sin. And I want you to look for something. What is David after ultimately? What is he going for? What is he pursuing ultimately? Here it is. He tells God, after being exposed, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it you will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David is saying, let me hear one more time, Father, joy and gladness. Let these bones that you've broken rejoice one more time. Restore to me, Father, the joy of my salvation. He desperately, desperately wants to feel joy in God. And so he's confessing his sins. He's saying, I've done this all. I've done it before you. I've sinned against you. And as the tidal waves of guilt and remorse crash against his soul and pummel him, he wants to know that God hasn't abandoned him. He wants to know that God still loves him. And so he is fighting for his joy in God. And when you do rejoice in God, we have a name for that. It's called praise. And so, when he says, deliver me from my guilt, O God, for my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, or open my mouth, I will declare your praise, what he's saying is that my joy needs to manifest itself in praising and worshiping your name. The praise that he seeks in these passages is his enjoyment of God overflowing from his soul. This is the reason for everything. This is the reason for everything. Our joy in God, which is expressed in praise. So when we began, we asked the question, how did Jesus triumph on the cross? How did he gain victory? How can we call what happened there 2,000 years ago a win for Jesus? And the answer is this. The cross is a victory because it shows us very clearly that God's love for us is ridiculously absurd. It is enormous and immense. And when we see his love, when you like really see it in the cross, when you see it for what it really is, our hearts sing for joy. We can't help it. We can't help it because we recognize what he did for us in forgiving us. So as we worship together in the next few minutes and as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, 
if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you trust him, your sins have been forgiven. I invite you to take the elements and participate in communion. And as you do, I want you to do everything you can with your mind and your heart to feel this reality. Whatever it takes. Pray, look at scripture, sing, whatever it takes. Get your soul wrapped up in this triumph of Christ that God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us from every single debt. While we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, he looked down on us and instead of expressing his wrath or his justice, he had extraordinary compassion on us. And he blotted out the record of debt forever. It is nailed to the cross. It is not yours anymore. None of that sin belongs to you. None of it. You are free from it. And we are forgiven people. Every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit has been canceled. He doesn't see it anymore. He's, he's washed it away. And he did that specifically to show you his love. I want to show you my love. So I'm going to die on a cross and take all of your sin away. And so now we know what it means to rejoice in God, is to see that and to have our hearts respond because it's unspeakably glorious. Let's pray. Father God, you are so glorious and so worthy of our praise. And we find often myself, I find myself so so weak to give you the kind of affection that you deserve and ought to have. So unwilling in my own heart, preoccupied with infinitely meaningless things, good or bad. And so, Father, Sunday mornings are, I pray for my friends and for myself, a haven where we can just cut out everything and say, I want to see you, God. I want to see you with the eyes of my heart, and I want to know not only how glorious you are, but I want to look into the depths of the cross and see what you were willing to do to show your love for us. That while we were enemies and sinners, fit for only one thing, to be judged guilty. Christ Jesus infiltrated human existence, gathered up every single wickedness, even ones we haven't even committed yet, brought them up to the cross and blotted them all out. They're gone. We are forgiven before a holy God bearing the righteousness of Christ Jesus alone. I pray that we would feel that, Father. I pray that as we worship, Lord, you would take that reality and that you would press it by your Holy Spirit into the deepest parts of our soul, that we would not only see it, but that we would never forget, forget it. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.